are a missional church. But what do we mean when we say missional? Missional means that we recognize and accept our role as missionaries in our world. Everyone who is a member of our church is part of the Cross Church missional team. We are devoted to advancing God's kingdom. The Seven Habits of Serious Christ Followers is all about being missional. 2017 is the year of habit number seven, giving, because we want to gather our resources in order to make a big impact on our world. Missional living is the adoption of the posture, thinking, behaviors, and practices of a missionary in order to engage others with the gospel message. We usually think of missions as something that happens overseas or up north. Both assumptions are correct, but that's not the whole story. Jesus called us to reach everyone, beginning at home and reaching out to the very ends of the earth. We are doing that well in Burundi, but occasionally we need to re-examine what we're doing here at home. We have a great heritage of serving this community for over 60 years. Today and for the next few weeks, we'll be focusing on the practical things that we need to be doing in order to accomplish His will regarding our friends, family, and our own community. It's not God's will that any should perish, but that all would come to a knowledge of Christ. What are you doing to introduce family and friends to Jesus? Good morning, everyone. And I'm telling you what a fantastic weekend. Uh, We're still riding high from that. I got very little sleep. I had to speak at at a breakfast on Saturday morning, so... Here we are Friday, here late Friday night, and then I'm um, wound up and then thinking about what I got to say at 8.30 the next morning. I didn't get any sleep. And, um, uh, but God just showed up and, and helped me in such a powerful way. And then, and then coming here and uh, seeing the, the outpouring of generosity from uh, this church and from the friends and family of this church is absolutely stunning. And uh, I, some have said this was one of the best weekends ever, if not the best we've ever done. And uh, I would say this is Cross Church at its very best. Uh, I want to just uh, remind you that there were 70 people who were serving this weekend to make it possible. And um, if you add up the man hours, it's at least 940, if not more. And, you know, I was thinking about that, Janet. If, if it was just one person doing all that, I would take half a year to make all this happen. Isn't that amazing? That's like six months of hard labor for one person. And so all these people came together and made it possible for us to raise the kind of money that we did. So um, can we just give, once again, give the volunteers a hand? We had, uh, we had fewer people come to the banquet this year, and uh, I'll be honest with you, you know, we, we're not sending out big missions teams this year. We are in 2018. Um, so I wondered, were, were we going to be able to, to, you know, bring in a significant offering? And so we kind of aimed low for 25000 And so uh, my dad said to me, son, I told you, you shouldn't worry about these things. So I said, okay, dad, I'll listen to you uh, next time, maybe. <laughs> You're going to notice, I think Janet mentioned already, that there's four kids that still need to be sponsored. We originally had 17 kids that needed sponsorship. And on the first night, 13 of those 17 were sponsored, and almost everything off the souvenir table was taken. 
And so I, I, we have to come up with something. I, we were going to go rummaging through our house to see, see if we could find any African Burundian uh, artifacts, but uh, we said that if we could sell all the all of the gifts and souvenirs on the souvenir table, that we could feed the Burundian village of hope for two years. And I know it sounds staggering, but that's the actual cost. We were, we'd be able to feed the whole village for two years. And I think just about everything is sold. There's still a little bit of coffee left and cards and whatnot. So if you want to drop in by there later and buy that, that would be fantastic. But getting back to these 17 kids. So we had four more to sponsor on Saturday. And I, Jen and I had a chat and I said, we got to get more kids here. We get more kids sponsored. And so Janet got on the phone and was working all through Saturday trying to, trying to get these profiles together. And uh, we were getting through the course the whole night and nobody was, nobody was taking any of these kids. I mean, not even the, the four that were left over from the original 17. And so uh, I guess, I, I don't know, did I twist arms? I don't know. I can't remember if I made anybody feel guilty or manipulated anybody. I didn't break down crying, I don't think. But uh, somehow, some way, God moved in people's hearts. We got four left. And I was just saying to Janet, God really must have wanted these 10 kids, these 10 extra kids that were not even in the system yet. Delson just had these kids. He got the pictures of these 10 kids. God must really want those 10 kids taken care of. And just think about how God works. It's, it's really quite mysterious and quite wonderful to think that, that somehow, some way, these 10 kids are in the system now are going to be cared for. So I can hardly wait to see what's going to happen with those 10 kids. But um, it was thrilling to see people respond. Uh, one, one, one couple, senior citizen couple, they uh, have five kids already, and they're not rich. I can tell you that. I know them. They, they're not rich at all, and yet they just felt that they wanted to adopt one more child. These sort of things, man, they just... They just brings such joy to my heart. It makes me feel like this is what I signed up for when I became a pastor. This is, this, is what I, this is why I do what I do. This is why I put up with what I put up with, the struggles, the heartaches, the, the difficulties, to see that sort of thing happen. Um, and of course, uh, the other thing that was so thrilling is that we've got uh, already 13 people signed up to go to Burundi in 2018. So it's just absolutely a thrilling weekend. And by the way, if you're interested, you haven't had a chance yet, please do sign up. And by the way, just because you sign up doesn't mean that, that uh, you absolutely 100% after you get your name on that list that you got to go. It's just come, find out, get some information, and we'll take it from there. Now, in case you weren't here, I just want to remind you of the four things that we were raising funds for. Uh, first was the Cross Church Burundi uh, office and operation so that we can administer uh, what we're doing there. The other thing is uh, so that we can feed the people who are starving. One of the wonderful things about the Church of Jesus Christ is, uh, you know, someone said, well, how are we going to distribute the food to those who are starving in Burundi? And I said, well, we've got 40 distribution centers in Burundi spread throughout the land. And so what we're going to do is we're going to just use our existing churches as, as distribution points. And so I need you to really pray about that because it's really quite a difficult uh, logistical um, uh, problem, nightmare, some would say to get the money to the country, to buy the food, and then to have it distributed uh, while, all the while, um, while not being molested or attacked by, uh, by robbers and, and whatnot. So it's, it's tough. But we have such, a, we have such a, a burden on our hearts to do this. 
the other thing that the money was going to go towards is a pastor's conference in May. And then uh, finally, we want to help build and repair some of the church buildings that we're working with. So these people in Burundi, they're so grateful to God, and we are so grateful here at Cross Church to be able to be part of something like that. Everybody say amen to that? Great, thank you. But I got a question for you this morning. We are busy raising money and going over to Burundi, but here's my question. What are we going to do about the mission field that's right here in Winnipeg, right here on our own doorstep? Because it's fun to sign up to go to exotic places in the world, isn't it? We all, we all, we all kind of like to go on a trip and go somewhere exciting, somewhere special, some kind of a little bit dangerous. But what about right here? What are, what are we going to do? You know, I went to the mission field uh, when I was in my 20s, and one of the things that, the first questions that were was asked to me um, was this, Alan, you want to go to Greece, but what are you doing here in Winnipeg? Because if you're, not, if you're not reaching the lost and making a difference here in Winnipeg, what makes you think you're going to make a difference in Greece? And then, and then the director of our missions department just sat there, crossed his arms, and waited. And I broke out into a sweat. <laughs> so I'm wondering, did, am I doing enough? Am I sharing the gospel enough? And you'll be happy to know that I actually was very involved in the community. Uh, Charlene, Trish, that's when I was in Carberry, and we really hit that community hard. Uh, trying to, to bring the gospel to the people there. And I shared that, and the guy said, well, sounds like you're ready to go. I want to say this to you. If we are not doing here in Winnipeg what we want to do over in Burundi, then there's something flawed about our faith and about our approach to the Great Commission. We have a job to do, and it's got to start here. And the evidence to me that that we are called to do the work God wants us to do abroad, is that we're also doing it here. Would anybody say amen to that? Is that it? Thanks, John. You know, when I was a youth pastor, I had a very dramatic experience. I was at a youth conference. I just started the ministry, and I was taking the kids to a youth conference in Brandon, Manitoba, and the room was full of about a 1,000 kids, and... Uh, as I was sitting there, that's noisy and loud, and there's some kids that were obnoxious, and there were spitballs flying, and, and <laughs> airplanes flying through the air. This was a, a, these, were, these were Christian kids. And, uh, it, I mean, it was, it was just, uh, it was just uh, almost unbearable. And I felt myself annoyed, and, and uh, I was made sure that my kids were all together here, obey, you know, obeying, their, obeying my commands. <laughs> and staying in line and that sort of thing. But I, I, I suddenly found the Holy Spirit speaking to my heart. And it wasn't an audible voice, but it was very clear. I felt God saying, Alan, take a look around. Just, just stop and look around. And so I did that. I just, I turned around, I literally turned around, looked at the stadium, or not stadium, but the conference room was full, full of youth. And some of them were laughing their heads off and hitting each other and kids in headlocks and you know, girls screaming, pulling hair, whatever. It's like, what am I doing here? Is this what I signed up for? And then I heard God's 
voice. I heard, uh, not again, not an audible voice, but I heard God's voice. It was Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. And here's what it says. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And it was as if God took the blindness from my eyes and suddenly I saw these crazy, wild, uncontrollable youth the way God saw them. I saw them as sheep who were harassed by life, harassed by their hormones, because you're at that age, right? Everybody remembers that age? Apparently not. <laughs> you don't remember when you hit puberty? You, you're, you're, you're just wild and crazy at that age, and uh, these kids are, are, are battling peer pressure. They're battling their own insecurities, tons of insecurity. And I started to see them as Jesus saw them. And that was a game changer for me, not just for youth ministry, but for my whole life. And I can tell you that uh, I began to see things the way God saw them. Some youth pastors or some, people, some pastors don't want to do, uh, do that kind of ministry. They don't want to work with kids because kids intimidate them. They don't want to work with youth because youth intimidate them. They don't want to work in the poor end of town because, because they intimidate them. They want to go where everybody is perfect, all put together, and they got their act together. The fact of the matter is, folks, and here's what you need to know about, about the heartbeat of God, is that God loves the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And it's, it's not just the guys that have got themselves all cleaned up that God's calling. He's calling everybody. The helpless, the harassed, the sheep who seem to have no shepherd. We look at the kids who are the cool kids, the tough kids, and we think, yeah, they got it together and they don't need us. But I'm going to tell you, every kid, every teenager, cool or not cool, tough, shy, backward, smelly, pimply, greasy hair, needs Jesus. And by the way, it's not just the kids that need Jesus, it's their parents as well, and their little brothers and their little sisters. I want us to understand today that God loves this world so much, and he's called you and I to go into this world to help him care for these sheep who don't have a shepherd. I'm going to tell you something, that moment was a turning point for me because I was no longer intimidated. Because remember, when I was growing up, I was, uh, I was a, a child, and then uh, as soon as I started growing whiskers on my chin at about age 12 or 13, I started working for my dad. By the time I was 60, my dad gave me my own truck, and I was a serviceman, and I was installing hot water tanks at age 16. So I was a child, and then I was a serviceman. Somehow I missed my youth and <laughs> some of those years. And so I didn't really know what to do with these youth. And, and quite frankly, it was, a, it was a little bit intimidating because it was something I didn't understand. All I understood was be a child and then be a man. There was nothing in between. But after God spoke to me and brought this, this verse to my heart, uh, I, I've never been intimidated since. I, I, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid to share with people the love of God. 
And folks, that's what I want to talk about for the next few weeks, today and for the two weeks later. I want to talk about what it means for us to be a missionary in this world, uh, and particularly in our community and in the city. Uh, I, do not, I do not apologize for being a missionary to Burundi and to other parts of the world, but I also do not apologize for being a missionary right here in our own backyard. So what is a missionary? A missionary is someone who sees the broken and the lost the way that God sees them. So that's the first half of my definition. A missionary is someone who sees the broken and the lost the way that God sees them. And, and Jesus tells us how God sees them as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Folks, that means that the people in your life, in your family, uh, at your job sites, uh, at your place of um, employment, your, your, your friend, your, maybe your own child, your sister, nephew, uncle, whatever. They need God. And what they may not understand is how much they need God. You understand how much they need God, but they may not know how much they need God. And I'm going to tell you, this is part of the reason why we don't tell people about God, because in our hearts, we're, first of all, we're intimidated by them, because they look like they've got it all together. They look like they're rich. They, they got a high IQ. They seem to be, they got a great, uh, great social network. They've, they just seem to have it together. They've got great life skills. And you wouldn't think of them as people who are harassed, helpless, and like sheep without a shepherd. But here's what you need to know about how God sees people who don't walk with him and don't know him. He sees them as they really are. See, we're all good at putting up a facade. We're all good at faking it. We're all good at pretending I've got it together. I'm, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm part of the cool kids club. And by the way, it's not just for kids who are teenagers. It goes right into adulthood. We all want to be part of the cool club. We want to be able to hang out with the people who are the cool ones. And I see it even at my age. I'm still seeing people at my age, and they're still, they want to be with the cool kids. But God sees them as lost, harassed, helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And so when I first started as a youth pastor, I found myself angry at times with kids, that kids weren't cooperating, uh, kids who seemed so rebellious. I would say, do this, and they would do that. I'd say, do that, they would do this. They just never seemed to want to cooperate. And I, I was working hard to help them in, in every way conceivable. I'd pick them up, drive them to youth. They wouldn't say thank you. I'd buy, them, I'd buy them something to eat, never say thank you. I found that they were testing me constantly. And really, quite frankly, in my heart of hearts, I just wanted to wash my hands of it all at times and, and then go work for my dad and be a plumber. I mean, that's got to be easier, right? It certainly pays more. I came to see that I, I needed to see these young people through God's eyes. God needed me to love these kids. And guess what? These kids needed me to love them. They needed me to love them in such a way that they feel, they felt, pardon me, they felt loved. That if anybody asked, when you go to that youth group, why do you go? They would say, because I feel like I belong. Because I feel that when I go there, I'm loved. 
And we had a lot of kids from the community who came to our, to our, to our youth group. I mean, the church at that time, it's, it's Grace Community Church now, but it was Charleswood uh, Temple at that time. Uh, a lot of those kids were from the community. Their parents didn't go to church anywhere. But the reason they came is because they came to a place where they were loved, where they were accepted, where they felt like they were belong. I'm going to ask you a question this morning. How do you see the people in your life? How do you see those who don't know Christ, who don't know God, who don't go to church? How do you see them? Do you judge them? Do you see them through judgmental eyes? Or do you see them through pitying eyes? Oh, look at that poor guy. Oh, well. Or do you see them through the love of God, the, the eyes of compassion of God? Do you see them as Jesus sees them? As people who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. As people who need to know about the great love of God. Some of you may or may not have heard of this man. His name is Christopher Hitchens. He wrote this book. Can you read that? Read it with me. Can you read? Read it again. Now, I can tell you something. When I remember when this book came out, um, and I, 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 you know, remember hearing Christopher Hitchens uh, uh, giving his his debates and doing his debates and his speeches and whatnot. And the Christian community, especially, was just incensed at this evil, wicked Christopher Hitchens as an enemy, a foe that needed to be vanquished. We need to, to double down and be better debaters. We need to know how to wrestle this guy to the ground and make him shut up. That's how the Christian community was talking. And there is books written to debate Christopher Hitchens, to debate the points in his great book, God is Not Great. And everybody was in a panic, and there's, oh, editorials and Christian magazine blogs written. Um, it, go to, go to comp, pastor's conferences or somebody who's doing, doing a, a talk about Christopher Hitchens. And, and anybody ever hear of Dawkins? And, and the, the, the names go on and on. We saw him as, as an enemy. There was a, a Christian man by the name of Larry Taunton. He's a, a, a learned man, a scholar. And uh, Larry Taunton decided that what he'd like to do is he'd like to bring Christopher Hitchens into the Christian community to debate Christians. In fact, Larry Taunton, rather than seeing Christopher Hitchens as an enemy, saw him the way that Jesus saw Christopher Hitchens, as someone harassed, helpless, and like a sheep without a shepherd. Now, we'll let the Spirit of God speak to you right now, because I'm hoping today that your mindset and that your eyesight will change forever, that you will begin to have the eyesight of God. Larry Taunton saw him as a man harassed and helpless and like a sheep without a shepherd, and he became Christopher Hitchens' friend. Not just any kind of friend, but such a good friend that any time Taunton and Christopher Hitchens were together at a debate, 
Christopher Hitchin would look to Larry and say, this is my friend. If everybody in America, especially every Christian, was like Larry, he said, this nation, this America, would be a wonderful culture, a wonderful society. He's given tribute to the Christian, Larry Taunton. And Christopher Hitchin knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Larry loved God. Larry is a, was a true blue Christian and was one of the men that would debate him at times. But Larry always treated him uh, as with respect, with dignity, always treated him as, as a friend, uh, always treated him, treated him as someone that, that he loved. And Christopher felt it. Well, the day came when Christopher Hitchens found out that he had esophageal cancer. And before his death at age 62, this Christopher Hitchens, some would call him the uber-atheist. He, uh, he considered becoming a Christian because of Larry. Larry wrote a book, in fact, about it and talked about his relationship with him. And so here's this Christopher Hitchens, a lifetime of rebellion against God, brought him to the moment where he's about to face death and he suddenly is staring into the depths of eternity, teetering on the edge of belief. And in this moment, when he's facing death, he thinks of the Christian who was actually kind to him and who was reasonable and actually loved him. There are many, many Christians who outright hated this man, and some still do. I would say that those who hate anybody uh, are people who don't have the eyesight of God. In fact, I question whether they truly understand what it means to be a Christian. In his moments of doubt, he had these long, long conversations with Larry. Yeah, he had doubts, and these doubts led him to seek out Christians, particularly Larry, and to contemplate, among other things, religion, religious conversion. Quote, at the end of his life, Christopher's searches have brought him willingly, if secretly, to the altar, says Taunton. But precisely what happened at the altar, no one, no one really knows. You know, I, I'm sorry to say it, but I actually heard some Christians say that this esophageal cancer that Christopher developed that took him at age 62 was the judgment of God. I'm going to tell you something, folks. That is so theologically incorrect and so not in line with Scripture. God says that it's not his will that any should perish. No matter what kind of attacks they level at God, do you think a book like this terrifies God? Do you think a book like this makes God think, oh no, they found out about me, what am I going to do now? They found out I'm not great. Do you think God in his heaven is terrified by the reflections of an atheist by the name of Christopher Hitchens? I can assure you he's not. When Larry Taunton looked at Christopher Hitchens, he didn't see an enemy. He saw someone lost, as lost as anybody else that needs to know Jesus. Can I remind you of somebody in the New Testament that was very much like Christopher Hitchens? If 
You didn't know there was someone like that, did you? I can tell you what his name is. The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, you know what he said about himself? He said he was the chief of sinners, breathing hatred and personally going after anybody who called himself or herself a Christian and personally overseeing the death and the slaughter of anybody who put their faith in Christ. And I'm going to tell you what a shocking day it was when God confronted the Apostle Paul, who was not the Apostle Paul yet, who was the hate-filled Jewish murderer of Christians and of the Christian faith. And God said to Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you doing this? And Saul said, well, who are you, Lord? You see, that's what everybody who doesn't know Christ is going to say. Who are you? They have this notion, this idea that they know who Jesus is, but the fact of the matter is they really don't know. And Christopher Hitchens, this lack of insight and ability to see, although he does see stuff and it can't be ignored, it needs to be addressed. He doesn't see Jesus. So here's the Apostle Paul, who, uh, who is first Saul. He is actually enemy number one to Christians, very much like Christopher Hitchens is to Christians today, and, and very much like anybody who doesn't know Christ. He's enemy number one. Where Christians saw an enemy, you know what God saw? God saw a potential servant. God saw a potential apostle. God saw an author of many of the books of the New Testament. I want the Spirit of God to speak to you now because you know people in your life right now and you think, oh, he would never become a Christian. Does anybody know anyone like that? No, honestly, does anybody know anybody like that? Maybe you work with him. Anybody know any women like that? Of course you do. They're in your family. They're at, your, at the place where you work. They're at the place where you play, you do sports. And they're quite loud and vocal. Here's what you need to do, folks. You need to begin to see them as Jesus sees them, as harassed and helpless as sheep without a shepherd. And I'm going to tell you right now, God is not angry with these people. He loves these people. He cares about, he loves them so much that he sent his son to die for them, to take away their sins. Because it's not God's will that any should perish. Now we understand then how we need to see people in our life that don't know Christ. And there are many. We all know many people like that. What do we do? I want to show you a passage of scripture here. So immediately after Jesus sees these helpless, hopeless, harassed people, Jesus turns to his disciples, and here's what he says. The harvest is, you read it for me. Okay, so we've got to respond then to what Jesus has shown us. So Jesus is helping us to see through God's eyes, and now Jesus is telling us how to respond. Now, again, it's easy to go to Burundi, easy to go to Zambia, it's easy to go to Costa Rica, but what about the mission field right here? 
So here's what, here's what Jesus says that we need to do. First of all, um, we're going to unpack this verse. First of all, we need to understand that Jesus is actually speaking to disciples, right? Then he said to his disciples. Um, and then what we need to see is that uh, Jesus sees the masses as a harvest field that needs to be harvested and brought in. Do you see the unsaved people in your life as people that need to be harvested and brought in? Now look, if you're not a disciple today, well then you, know, you can just disregard this. You don't have to listen to anything I'm saying. But if in fact you are a true disciple of Jesus Christ, then you need to start to see the people in your life who don't know Christ as people that need to be harvested. We'll talk about more of that in just a moment. And then Jesus tells us that there's in fact a shortage of workers. There's a shortage of people who will take in the harvest. And then finally, Jesus tells us to do what? To pray. To pray for God to send out workers to take in the harvest. Let's quickly take a look at this, uh, this notion of being a disciple. If you really are a disciple, if you really are a follower of Jesus Christ, then Jesus is speaking to you. Can I remind you of something this morning? Before you and I were called Christians, we were actually called disciples. If you, if you ask anybody who was following Jesus while Jesus was walking the earth, who are you? Or, or who do, to whom do you belong? They would say, I am a disciple of Jesus. Would you say that with me? I am a disciple of Jesus. It was not until we get to Acts chapter 11, verse 26, that, that it says that it was there in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. So we understand, first and foremost, and I'm going to be talking about this more in the weeks to come, but I want to point it out here this morning. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, then you need to take seriously what he's telling you to do. It's... it's no good to sit back and watch or just listen or observe. Jesus is calling you to action. Can I say it again? Jesus is calling you to action. You can't sit back and do nothing. The problem with the church in North America is that we have become uh, an observational church. We observe others who set themselves on fire and do great things for God. And we, say, we clap, we applaud them, say, way to go. Here's five bucks an offering plate. Do it again. And do it again. This is not what a disciple is. A disciple is somebody who is active, actively doing what Jesus has called him or her to do. And so I'm going to tell you today, ready for this, everybody? Ready, 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 ready? If... You are a follower of Jesus Christ. If, in fact, you are truly a Christian today, then you are a missionary. I'm hearing crickets. Because you never thought of yourself as a missionary. I've never been to a foreign, foreign country. Are you sure I'm a missionary pastor? Yeah. And I'm going to be pointing that out to you today, tomorrow, or next Sunday, and the week after that. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, then you are a missionary. Tell the person beside you, I'm a missionary. What'd they say? You don't look like one. You, you, you don't look adventurous enough to be a missionary. 
You don't look smart enough to be a missionary. You don't look uh, like you've been trained to be a missionary. The fact of the matter is, is that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a disciple, that means that you are a missionary. And I'm going to tell you this today, you can't ignore this. We talk about faith. What is faith? You've heard me say this many times. It's to believe God and do what he says. That's what faith is, to believe God and do what he says. So here it is. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So here's the next thing we need to understand. We need to see our unsaved friends as God sees them. Our unsaved friends or unsaved family members as a harvest that must be brought in. You know, I had friends who were farmers when I was at Charleswood Temple, which is now Grace Community Church. The number of farmers that would come in. And I'm going to tell you, when, when harvest time came around, it was like they became different people. It was really quite amazing. They were, they were relaxed. Winter's coming. I'm going down to Mexico. Um, you want to come look at tractors with me, Alan? It's like, oh, yeah, I love to do that. I, I always like to look at tractors. And uh, you want to come and see the, where we bring the grain? Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> and then how about coming to the place where I buy my seed? Oh, that just sounds like a great time. And relax, take it easy, shuffle across the land, bend down, smell the soil. But when it's harvest time, folks, they put on their capes and their super clothes, and then they go crazy. They don't sleep, they hardly eat, they're driving along, they grab a sandwich and keep going. Because there's a harvest to be brought in. And they don't want to take the chance of having bad weather come and destroy that harvest. They have got one thing on their mind, and that's to bring in the harvest. I wonder today, do we have that same sense of urgency about bringing in the harvest? Do you have family members, friends, people you work with that don't know Christ? What we need, folks, is to develop in our own heart an urgency to reach out to these people, to get them to church, or to at least share our story. But Pastor Allen, it scares the daylights out of me. Look at it. Remember this, Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. And your job, folks, is to simply go and tell people what Jesus has done for you. You don't need to be a Bible school uh, uh, graduate. You don't need to go to seminary. You don't have to have a particularly high IQ. You don't have to, uh, you don't really, really there's, all you have to do is have a story. You gotta just be able to tell people what has Jesus done for you? Because I'm going to tell you right now, they're waiting for you. They're waiting for you to come and bring a message. I, uh, I've, I've, I can't tell you the number of times where I have been in a situation where I felt the Holy Spirit prompted me to speak to somebody, and that person will say to me, you know, I've been praying and asking God, if you're real, then send somebody to speak to me. I, I can't even tell you how many times that happens. And I'm going to tell you, there's people in your life right now that are waiting for you just to speak up and to share what Jesus has done for you. We're told here that there's a shortage of workers. 
And I'm going to tell you right now, folks, the reason there's a shortage of workers is because, quite frankly, we just don't want to do this work. It's easier not to. It's just easier to mind our, mind our own business and let people go on their way. It's easier not to get involved. It's easier not to put ourselves out there. It's easier not to be embarrassed and take the risk of being embarrassed. It's easier not to tell people what Jesus means to me. But listen, folks. There's people here waiting for us, waiting for us to step up and say, let me tell you what a difference God has made in my life. One of the first things that happened to me when I became a Christian is I started telling everybody about Jesus. Now remember, that, that was when I was in grade six. I, I knew almost nothing about the Bible. I hadn't read the Bible through. I read a few passages of, of the Bible. I might have memorized John 3.16 and, and maybe one or two other verses. I didn't know anything. But I did know this, that I'd become a Christian. I was sharing yesterday at the Boys Brigade uh, at Calvary Temple. I was sharing how, how God got a hold of my life. I was eight years old, and, and I had this, what, what I would call a pre-conversion experience. I felt, I, I began to understand my need of God. And, and then what happened, it took about a year, maybe two years later, where I became aware, fully aware of my sinfulness, of how much I need God. And then suddenly, one, one uh, uh, Monday night at Boys Brigade, Pastor Barbara came to speak to both the battalion, which are the older boys, and the stockades, which were the younger boys, and he just laid out very simply that Jesus could take away our sins. Jesus could wash away our sins. And all of a sudden I realized that that's what I wanted God to do for me. I wanted God to wash away my sin. Just 10 years old. I hadn't, I hadn't robbed any banks. I hadn't, hadn't done really anything that bad, really. But I was so aware of my sinfulness. And I was one of the first to stand up, and, and, and I started crying. I remember that so clearly. And it was just so cool because one, the, the man that actually then prayed with me to accept Christ and to take that, that final step to conversion, his name was Fred Thurner, and he was sitting like right at the table, right, right there, right where David's sitting. And he's sitting there, and he's got tears streaming down his cheeks. He's, he's in his 80s. I think he's 80-something now. But I said, Fred, it was because of you. And so and I had a moment. I'm crying. He's crying. Everybody's crying. My brother, Carrie, was there with his son and their kids. They, he's in the back crying. And I thought to myself, what would happen if Fred Thurner hadn't shown up to do work? There's a shortage of workers. What would happen if Fred said I wasn't going to be there? I, I'm not going to be there. I want to tell you, folks, it's critical that every one of us shows up for duty and says, God, hear my, use me. I'm prepared, I'm willing to share my story. Let me just say this in closing. Jesus says that we should pray for God to send out workers. You know, we just went through the Lord's Prayer and went through that part where it says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is really what we're praying for. We're praying that God will send out workers and that 
maybe, just maybe, you would be the answer to your own prayer. Well, you're praying for people to become Christians, your family members, your children, your son, your daughter, that maybe, just maybe, you may be the answer to that prayer. But I can tell you this, if you are truly a disciple, truly a follower of Jesus Christ, then your heartbeat has got to be the heartbeat of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the people in my life who showed up, who were willing to give of their time, willing to address the mission field right on their own doorstep. I think of Fred Thurner this morning. And thank you, God, for his willingness to be used by you. And the, and the, the many others, God, who've come into my life and, and helped me come to that place of conversion and selling my heart out to you, God. I don't understand, God, why, why there's not a, another plan, but there's only one. And it, it means that every one of us as Christians is used to bring in the harvest. You're God. You're supreme overall. And surely you could do it all by yourself because you're God. But you choose not to. You choose to use us. So God, this morning... My prayer as a pastor of this congregation is that every single person in this church would see himself or herself as a missionary called to see people the way you see them, as helpless, harassed like sheep without a shepherd. And that, God, we would be prepared and willing to say, God, hear my, use me to win him to Christ, to win her to Christ, to share my story of how my life is transformed by Jesus. And so thank you today, God, for this army of Christians, of disciples, called by you to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God, we commit ourselves to you now, asking that this week would be a special week, a week where we share our faith. And if you agree with that this morning, say amen. Tell the person beside you, go share your faith.